This is getting out of hand. Now there are two of them. Where's your innovation, huh? Sequels suck. Do the same thing. Everyone's happy. It's all about the money, boys! Here we go again. You tell your lies, and you think no one will know. But there are two people who will know. Yes, two who will know the truth. Your God, and Hercule Poirot. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of Franchise Fatigue. This is a show where we explore film series one movie at a time, unless we're talking about underrated movies, which is what we're doing this week. I am your host, Gabe Green, and as always, I am here with my co-host, James Hamrick. What's up, dude? Not that much. I apologize for butchering that. Uh, <laughs> I am clearly not Kenneth Branagh, but the line is so good it has to be included. Yes, I think we have to just right at the start give a formal apology to the nation of Belgium and probably most of Europe uh, for all of the horrible accents that won't be happening because this film is so ridiculously quotable and I can't help but just try to attempt the accents even though I can't actually do any of them. So, Yeah, because the accent reaches its full potential. I mean, the, the quote itself reaches the full potential when combined with the accent. Yes. So this week we are talking about Kenneth Branagh's 2017 adaptation of Agatha Christie's classic uh, mystery novel, Murder on the Orient Express. So this is not a franchise, uh, but as you probably know, we had a podcast running for a lot of episodes, I forget how many, where we reviewed underrated films. And then when we shifted to franchises, I wanted to to keep that uh, tradition alive of occasionally going back and talking about a film that we really loved, that we felt didn't get a, enough appreciation. And one of the reasons I wanted to keep that alive was so I, I knew I wanted to talk about this at some point, because uh, the reception this film has gotten has really broken my heart yeah i would think so long as movies like this exist i'm always going to need some sort of outlet to like in in one way uh praise the film because too few people are doing it and then on the other just vent against the or rant really against the people who have missed this movie's greatness because yeah it's pretty great <laughs> so this will be our last episode before christmas actually it'll, it'll probably come out around christmas just trying to we record these ahead of time but, but there will be a week-long break between this and our mission impossible episode so whenever that actually does come out just know there'll be a week without an episode uh, yes it's finally the winter is finally catching up with us here in uh phoenix and it's like almost 50 degrees and it's terrible oh man that is perfect weather <laughs> i'm i'm still waiting for us to drop down into like you know 30s 20s get some snow like that'll happen mm -hmm. in texas though i love the cold i mean I grew up in Virginia, and so I thought, oh, it'll, it'll be fine. Winter here is nothing. Yet two years out here, and I'm just as like pathetic as everyone else. All right. So before we begin our main discussion, I want to ask you guys, if you enjoy the show, to please take a moment to go and rate and review us on iTunes, and then give us a like on Facebook. And uh, James, why don't you tell us a little bit about how this film came to the big screen? So the classic book by the legendary mystery writer Agatha Christie herself was published in 1934. Um, in the U.S., it was actually published under the name Murder on the College Coach. So you can blame us Yankees for ruining the titles of great British books. It is the Philosopher's Stone. <laughs> Although, actually, I do prefer Sorcerer's Stone. But regardless, uh, this is the 10th novel starring Hercule Poirot, um, a character that appeared in 33 novels and countless short stories as well. Um, he has been portrayed over the years on radio, film, and television, and staged by such actors as Charles Lawton, Albert Finney, Peter Ustinov, David Suchet, Alfred Molina, I didn't know about that one before this time, or Ian Holm, and John Malkovich. 
um, I'm going to have to hunt down whatever films or shows or whatever those are in. Cause John, John Malkovich sounds kind of amazing, but also fairly dreadful. <laughs> I, feel, I feel like that's one where you just take whatever it is as it is and enjoy it that way. Um, but I could actually picture people like Alfred Molina and Ian Holm being very good in the role. Uh, since its release, it has become quite possibly her most well-known story um, with many adapt- adaptations over the years. Probably the most notable ones would be the two thousand seven, or sorry, the uh, nineteen seventy four Sidney Lumet film uh, with Albert Finney, and the two thousand ten BBC version starring David Suchet. Uh, one of the major inspirations for the story itself was the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh's son in nineteen thirty two, two years prior to the book's release, um, and the movie actually changed the location of the kidnapping to um, to the location of Lindbergh's kidnapping. Uh, it mm. wasn't originally that in the book, but because that was the inspiration, that's actually where the location was changed for in the film. Lindbergh was uh, the first man to fly across the Atlantic. His son, Charles Jr., was kidnapped when he was only 20 months old, held for ransom, and then murdered after the ransom was paid. Um, so knowing that this is based on a very real murder of a child, the notion of hunting the murderer down across the world and stabbing him to death really doesn't sound outlandish anymore. You know, just... Yeah, that... That's a very difficult story to read about. It's, you know, stories based on events like that, like, they always end up meaning more, at least for me, meaning more, like we said here, you know, it's it's not outlandish it, once it becomes real, because they're like, okay, wait, never mind, I, I kind of get that. Um, so then, as far as, as far as this particular film, um, there's not a whole lot known about whenever like the idea to resurrect it came to be we know that the rights um that 20th century fox acquired the rights in 2013 um and then later that year in december it was announced that the film was going to be in development with ridley scott simon kinberg and mark gordon producing although i'm not sure if if they had any sort of actual influence over the actual like the final product uh, a ridley scott version of this film would be very interesting very very different but interesting. very it's it's as, as beautiful as his movies are and as interesting as his movies are and this movie is very very interesting to me he also aside from like a couple characters rarely ever makes characters that i just really really care about yeah. so <laughs> um i'm glad we got brenna it would have an entirely different soul yeah so, so it was announced in 2013 that a film was in development Though it would stay there uh, for two years until 2015 when it was announced in November that Kenneth Branagh was going to both star and direct the film. Uh, And it was also 2015 um, whenever screenwriter Michael Green was attached to the film. Uh, And that ended up, this releasing in 2007 ended up being a big year for Michael Green who wrote this, Logan, Alien Covenant and Blade Runner twenty forty nine, as well as well as co creating the show American Gods, which I uh, I heard good things about. Yeah, like that's a, just a crazy year, and all, all of those are films that I really like for how much more thoughtful and thematic uh, they they are over the that t- the type of films you usually see in that genre. Yeah, it's weird that we don't hear his name. Maybe maybe he is, and I'm just I'm missing the conversations, but. I feel like this guy should be brought up a lot more in conversation because he's he's kind of amazing just going by that. One of the things that we can talk about in terms of 
what was wanted to be accomplished with this film uh, and ways that it was going to set itself apart from um, from the adaptation was for Kenneth Branagh himself. I think the original novel ends with uh, Hercule Poirot pretty much just saying, "I I can't do." I can't do this, you know. I've I've discovered what it is, and I can't handle it. And he leaves. And uh, Kenneth Branagh, there's a quote where he was. Uh, I should have had it ready, but he was essentially saying that you know, in today's for today's audience, you can't just deliver cold facts. You have to deliver the facts and then find an emotional response to them. Um, mm-hmm. And so what he wanted to do, he the uh, the scene where uh, Hercule gives the gun to them pretty much as a test to see how far they're willing to go that was invented from from the two of them and it was a way of Branna really uh, or of Perot finding a way to process what he's learned you know are these people really animals um or is it more disturbing as i suspected and these are you know good people who have just as he puts it, has experienced a fracture of the soul. And so instead of simply just walking away right then, it seems like the movie made the process of coming to terms with the truth of the case more of an emotional process that he really had to contemplate. And I actually read the book shortly after seeing the film, and it's 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 an excellent little mystery, and in some ways it handles the mystery a lot better than the film does. However, it does it is completely lacking that emotional core that the movie brings. Like there there's it, there's no test to um, Poro's uh, uh, philosophy in the in the book. In the end, he just kind of he stands up, explains the case, does a bow for the audience, and exit stage left. You know, it, it's it's more of, much more of just him. It's a chance for Poro to show off how amazing and brilliant he is. It's 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 not about the characters. It's not about the emotion. And, and that, that's great for the novel, but obviously Branagh and Michael Green really wanted to take us in a different direction. Yeah, and, and Michael Green tells a really cool story where, so uh, as a kid, he says, you know, he, had, he would watch things like Dawn of the Dead all the time. And he and his family, you know, would rent movies pretty regularly and they'd all watch them. And one of the movies that was rented was Death on the Nile. And he said, you know, for some reason, that movie affected him more than any other movie he had seen up to that point. To the point where he had to like he sleep uh, he slept in the same room with his parents because he just had a hard time getting to sleep. And he said that caused him to strongly dislike Agatha Christie for a very long <laughs> period of his life because he said, you know, how could how could somebody write these stories and like have people who do these things? Because in his mind. The concept of evil and of, of right and wrong was only palatable and, and intolerable if things like zombies and monsters and aliens were involved. However, once you brought that to actual people, it made the thought so much more horrifying to him. Um, and so he said the way, like, that kind of emotional scarring he experienced as a kid affected how he wrote the script for this film, where he said a lot of his influence on the script was the focus on on Poirot's belief that it takes a truly scarred soul um, to commit murder. Um, that And that's what makes murder so horrifying, is that it, it shouldn't come naturally, and it takes a fractured soul to actually do something like this. So he, he took his initial just detesting of what she wrote, and he said now he's incredibly fond of all of her writing, and, and it, he says it caused him to try to approach the story in a more human way. 
So to talk about the the casting itself, um, everybody's in it. Yeah, Hollywood's in it, and it's awesome, and everyone's amazing. So no official casting was made uh, until August of 2016. Um, following, or, so yeah, between Kenneth Branagh's announcement and, and August of 2016, there's pretty much just rumors. Uh, Angelina Jolie was initially in negotiations to play uh, Mrs. Hubbard. However, after after some time, she ended up announcing a departure and following her leave. Uh, actresses like Charlize Theron um, were being considered for the role, um, although we don't know if she was approached or who all was approached. We just know there was a, a short list. Um, and then official announcements started being made in August of 2016 with Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, of Hamilton fame joining the cast as Dr. Arbuthnot. Mr. Burr, sir. Yes. Uh, one month later, the majority of the cast was announced uh, with Tom Bateman as book Johnny Depp as Edward Ratchet, Michelle Pfeiffer as Mrs. Hubbard, Daisy Ridley as Mary Debenham, Michael Pena originally as Benyamino Marquez, uh, Judy Dench as Princess Dragomirov, Lucy Boynton of Sing Street fame as Countess Helena Andreni, and Derek Jacoby as Edward Henry Masterman. Uh, and these casting announcements continue to be made through the end of 2016. Uh, later in the month, Josh Gad was announced as Hector McQueen. Marwan Kanzari as Pierre Michel, Penelope Cruz as Pilar Estravados, and finally Sergei Palunin as Count Rudolf Andreni. Uh, then finally, the last casting announcements were made in January of 2017, with Willem Dafoe joining as Gerhard Hardman and Manuel Gar- uh, Garcia Rulfo, uh, who was brought in to replace Peña, who had to drop out, most likely due to scheduling conflicts with A Wrinkle in Time. He should have stayed on. Although I really, really like... Uh, Garcia Rufo in the role, like his... Yeah. <laughs> I never tell lies anymore. Yeah, so filming began in November of 2016 in England. It was shot by Branagh's frequent collaborator, Harris Zambarlikos. I apologize if I got that wrong. A 65mm film as opposed to the industry, uh, the usual industry standard of 35mm. Um, this required a much bulkier camera, which made shooting the majority of the film inside of, a, of an enclosed train uh, much trickier. The score was composed by the wonderful Patrick Doyle, uh, who I believe has scored every uh, film that Kenneth Branagh has directed. Um, The song that plays over the credits, Never Forget, was performed by um, Michelle Pfeiffer and written by Patrick Doyle. And finally, the film was released on November 10th of 2017. And uh, this is actually kind of cool because I believe your first viewing was also the first film that we ever saw together in a theater. Yeah. So this is this is whenever that that fateful event, whenever you came down for Justice League and Man, a quick aside, I'm ready to re-record that because I tried to be positive and <laughs> boy. But anyways, yeah, we came down and I, I, or you came down and I really, really wanted to watch it uh, and you had seen it. And I really, really wanted wanted you to watch yeah, it. Yeah, and so we had time to fill and we went out and watched it and man, I, I really, really, really enjoyed it so much so that I told my friends about it. I was like, all right, guys, come on, we're going to go see this and I watched it again and enjoyed it probably a significant amount more the second time once I was able to you know, I, I missed bits of dialogue the first time because of so many thick accents and really the movie truly came together for me the second time even though I really enjoyed it the first time but the second time I that's whenever I can say I truly learned that I loved it yeah um so I have become an enormous fan of uh, Kenneth Branagh as a director over the last few years uh Cinderella especially um was one of my favorites when I believe it was 2015 mm-hmm. And so this was one of my most anticipated films of that of that year. And when I saw it, I had some issues, but I, I really enjoyed it overall. 
Uh, but that thing was it was the second viewing where I really started to fall in love with the emotion of the film. And then obviously I flew down to Texas and then saw it with you. And then after that, I came out just absolutely smitten. And I've been really championing this movie ever since. I guess some of the things that struck me most immediately and uh, and are some of the strengths of the film, I think, is just the aesthetic and the cinema- cinematography of the movie. Like, I know people have a lot of just gripes with the, the CGI, but honestly, like... Sometimes I one I don't he, uh, I don't hate CGI the way a lot of people do, and whenever it's used with just like the right color palette and and really good coloring of a film, I think it almost makes things just look like have a sense of magic and wonder to it. And so I think this this movie just looks gorgeous from beginning to end. Beautiful, uh, beautiful compositions. Uh, like I said, the the color grading of certain scenes is just like mind-numbingly amazing the the last shot of the film as the train uh, leaves the station and he approaches the car is just gorgeous like a painting and so yeah visually i just find this movie completely stunning yeah and like even if you don't like the cgi there's so much of this film that just takes place within the train with these just beautifully composed shots it's like a really wide screen and i love the shots where you're just kind of going through and you see like to, you see all the, basically all the cast are kind of framed in there. Each one's having their own reactions and going through their own story. And all of it's just captured in the frame. And just – I'm very upset this did not get a uh, cinematography nomination because Branagh uh, Zambarlikos uh, used every inch of this train. And they're just constantly finding new and beautiful ways to shoot this. And like – there's never this film never starts to feel like same old same old. You would think that you know shooting in a train, shooting inside this enclosed space, you would ha- you know start having to reuse shots and styles. But he, but they're able to somehow, for every step of the way, just keep everything feeling fresh. You know they move outside, they move into a cargo space. They're you know shooting through glass, shooting from above. He's, he's always finding something interesting. But and, and it's not just he, it's not just him being showy because I, I don't I don't think. For most of the like the, the dramatic stuff, it's not terribly showy direction, but it's all very thematically and uh, you know emotionally relevant. There, he's just able to use the locations, you know, put, and put them to great use to um, emphasize what is happening. For example, how um, I love how Poro is constantly framed through like, uh, framed alone, like through frosted glass. You know, it's just showing his isolation and loneliness, or shooting the scene where the body is discovered with a long take from above, which is. One of my favorite sequences oh, of that I year. Love that. And, and, and we don't, we don't, I like that we don't even see the body for like another five or ten minutes. It all just takes place inside the uh, the hallway, and people kind of go in and out. And oh, just the way he uses his cane to break open the door. Just, there's so much personality, and I'm going to talk more about that later. But and then when he's up, when he he announces the the murder to the passengers, and he says the murderer is here with us. And we and as he's doing, as he says that the camera is like peering at the the uh, suspects one by one through this really distorted glass. You know, everyone is suspicious. Um, beyond, beyond that, what his direction brings to this movie is just a set, or mainly for the first you know half two thirds, it's just a sense of joy. Ostensibly, at the beginning, it's a movie uh, that is kind of placing us into the, you know, the, the golden age of travel, where you know travel was finally becoming available to the you know to normal people with you know the, with with uh you know with steam trap with steam powered travel and so there was this real romance and adventure that you know a normal person could you know get on a train spend a few days on a train and go to the other side of the world um and there's just that that sense of adventure is captured beautifully by Doyle's score 
and just there's such a just a, a joy about life in in the care in uh, Hercule Poirot's character and and all the other people he meets. It's just it's just such it's a happy movie, and I like and I and he's always there's never a dull moment. Every scene is telling us something about a character. Just you know taking joy in a little touch here. I, I, I just. That, that's something I love so much about Brown. He, he seems to have so much fun making these movies. And, and it's not like in a crazy way like with a uh, Sam Raimi. But it's just every moment he is crafting for the you know, just the most the, the most experience you can have with that. W- w- of whatever emotion he's trying to get across. Yeah, and what's really cool is just visually... The, the movie finds a way to visually convey the tone that the movie has at that point. At the, at the very beginning... Especially one of my favorite sequences, I mean, just of of any movie recently, is is everything from Poirot first meeting book, uh, or re-meeting since they, they're they're friends, <laughs> uh, from that sequence all the way up through, um, like boarding the train, the introduction of all the characters and everything so stylized and and very like audacious and gaudy and stuff it's just it's really really cool and it's setting this and the, the music during that whole boarding sequence is, is fantastic and you have this beautiful long take where we follow uh, uh hercule from outside the train walking across from the front end all the way to the back end where he boards and then we re-follow him all the way back through the train but before that before that we, we circled the platform like twice going like introducing a lot of the different characters or, or reintroducing a lot of the other characters as well like the staging is insane because every shot is giving us so much information because there's so many characters and and, and each character is having their own moment that is, inf- is that is informing us about who they are and all that's happening in one shot with hundreds of extras running around in between. Yeah, it's just it's really really like efficient storytelling to me. Where you know, like you said, instead of we don't just see a, a line of all the people walking, they do they kind of have their moment. Whether it's you know it's it's. Um, McQueen and um, and Ratchet, you know, needing another table and him looking around, or, or the uh, the Count, you know, <laughs> destroying the camera, and then the, the somber, sad entrance of the Countess, and all of this stuff is happening to the point where by the time we're on the train, we have a really good gauge of you know who these people are, and and I love whenever he first meets Mrs. Hubbard and she's she's talking to him, trying to you know keep his attention for a bit, and he's like politely trying to. <laughs> To get away, and then one of my favorite lines ever. Whenever uh, you know he he first meets McQueen, and he's like, "We are how you say bunkies." It's like, really? It's like I am equally disappointed in you. This is nice. <laughs> like it's just that whole sequence. Like it, it feels like it recaptures this sense of like old school Hollywood vintage kind of fun joy. It's just the joy of filmmaking, and and uh, you up until the murder you still get a whole lot of that just aboard the train with the different interactions and it seems like anytime we move from scene to scene we've got these really fantastic transitions with like with Branagh's classic dutch angle of like all of these you know champagne bottles being popped and and poured and like the the desserts and plates being passed around he just we never just moved from scene to scene in a boring way even these transitions it's it's always just the movie feels so lively consistently throughout this portion yeah, it's so it's so old fashioned the way it's shot, and that 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 sense of staging where you have all those extras in the background like that that's that's something it feels very classic Hollywood. You know, it, ha, these long takes that had to be incredibly complicated. It seems like people just don't bother to to attempt all that much anymore. But then, uh, what's really cool is 
you know, the movie starts not cartoonish, but very stylized and exaggerated with these characters, you know, a lot of these introductions. And and it, I wouldn't go so far as to call it silly, but it's it's very, very comedic and very colorful. And I, the introduction to the character of Book is just hilarious. Oh and, uh, some of the best lines ever are shared between the two. <laughs> this is a prostitute. She is. I am. <laughs> Uh, or my favorite line, which is immediately after that, <laughs> where uh, Book just says, we're friends because I'm the only person who doesn't ask him about his cases because I don't care, and he never judges me for being a terrible person. <laughs> and Prickyo just says, indeed you are. Uh, it's just, that whole exchange is so hilarious. Or, so, or when the the British officer comes up, he turns around, are you a prostitute as well? <laughs> certainly not. Uh, but yeah, like this whole beginning is just so fun and so funny and so comedic and it has such a such a wonderful flair. And the the filmmaking reflects that throughout. But once there's a murder and we we really start getting into the emotion, it's like it doesn't betray its previously established tone at all, but it starts to calm down with a lot of these eccentricities. Um and you really start feeling these like you start to get to understand these characters and it feels like with everybody, there's just something lying underneath, you know, Percule, or Hercule Perot is constantly noting like it's there's, there's no, there are no, or sorry, there are no end to the lies being manufactured just for me. You, you get this sense of mystery. And, and so the movie, like whenever he's interviewing, uh, I think one of my favorite interviews is whenever he's talking with McQueen and the entire room is just darkly lit and he's kind of highlighted in the background and the camera's slowly pushing in on him. It's just, it, it's constant, the, the, the way he's shooting it, uh, the tone, it's constantly reflecting like the mood of the movie. And it, it's just really, really cool to see how we can make this transition to what is so fun, um, into this more serious movie. Although it, it never completely abandons that sense of fun either. Yeah. Um, I think we should probably move into the cast now and spend the next two hours <laughs> you know, talking about them. Um, first off, you just got to talk about Kenneth Branagh. Um, there is the, there's this this inclination among a, a lot of film critics. Like, I can't count the number of like snarky reviews of oh, you know, Branagh's so uh, egotistical. He put himself in the lead. He shouldn't have done that. He ruined the movie. Like, like Christoph, just like whether it was ego or. Him thinking he was the be- the most qualified person to fill this role is irrelevant. Like, what did Kenneth Branagh do in the lead of this film? And what he has is undeniably amazing. There, and what's crazy is like he is on screen for most of the movie. He's also directing. You know, he I don't I don't understand how he did. He gave us such a intricate performance as well as having to direct the whole freaking thing. But this is it's just such a delightful person with all you know constant little quirks and just the little joys he has or frustrations in life um <laughs> the, the beginning is like it is not the it is the imbalance of the <laughs> or just it is like the old joke yes the rabbi the priest and the imam forgive me i am belgian and it's just there's so much life and sparkle behind his eyes it's, he takes so much joy in life he has that line um Ruse of thrashing, and he's talking about, you know, I'm about an age where I, mm. where I know what I like, and what I like I enjoy immensely. What I cannot, what I don't like, uh, is unbearable. Like he's he he's like that. He he knows what he likes, and he takes so much joy in life. But also, the he, the things that come up and crop up in his life that he doesn't like, you you instantly know it. Um, despite you know he, he he's always very polite about it. 
Uh, but uh, but then, I- even if this were just you know a delightful surface level performance full of quirks, it would have been fantastic. But w- what he does is throughout the film, as these challenges come up, as this mystery that he cannot make heads or tails of rises up, and is like just challenging to him him to his core of the entire identity he's created for himself, the uh, this identity that he has, where in the beginning, where he where he's talking to the the British officer and he says, you know. He says, he says, I, I can only see the world as it should be. It makes most of life unbearable, but it's useful for the detection of crime. So he, he like he sees the world as it should be. And so whenever anything is wrong, it just like grates at his soul. So as he goes through this case and just everything about the case is wrong and he just cannot make sense of it, you see it's really getting to him. And, he, and also I, I, there's something I, that is like really, really beautiful about his performance is – um. After the murder, and he's like, I don't want to take this case. This is, I'm, I'm, I'm resting. I'm on holiday. Please don't make me do this. And all of that warmth and joy is gone. Like, when he when he discovers the murder, when he's talking about murder, he's like, uh, I do not approve of murder. Like Every day we meet people in the world who could be better without, but we don't murder them. And there's just this icy, cold ferocity behind his eyes where th- this is like, you know, he sees the world as it should be, and this is, like, the ultimate wrong. And it it just it it feels like every case where he has to deal with a murder just cuts him to his soul and there's this just this really like hard edge cold ferocity behind his performance whenever he feels like he's getting closer to the murder like you know he's usually very friendly in all the interviews but when he when he's on the send when he's when he finds a like when he's going after a uh John, hector mcqueen after he tries to burn the books or daisy ridley after she discovers he's lying like he is just this like cold fury just pouring out over them and just this, this like righteous indignation that how dare you how could you do this you you murdered someone like and i love that you know he plays that so well and it never feels like it's a different character it's all just a revealing a different facet of this wonderful human being yeah i definitely do not think that most critics truly appreciated the nuance to this character um because like you said, it never feels like he's giving two different performances. He is this one person who is just immensely complex. Um, and there's so many layers to him. Like, the amount of joy I get in, in watching the amount of joy he gets from reading Dickens. It's like, <laughs> his laugh is just perfect. And like, I could watch an entire movie of just his vacation and him finally experiencing all, all of what he wants to. Or when he finally gets the perfect day, except a little squeak he does. Oh, with the, the fingers. Yeah, it's it's just, he's so fun to watch. And like, because, you know, because you have those lines early on where he just says, you know, what I have makes life sometimes unbearable. I love watching it whenever life comes together for him in those little moments. Um, but there's so many different things about him that I just... It feels like this is a we're watching a movie on a character who's been established like for a long time before. And I know we are in the sense that this, you know, there's books and books and books about this guy. But I mean, just even this interpretation, like this feels like somebody who has been alive for a long time and has seen all of this stuff because there's just so much to him. Um, one of the things that I do love about him is is. He, this kind of like consistent level of politeness even when he like when he clearly dislikes somebody like that line where he said um where uh he's talking to uh 
to Ratchet and he's like I, he says I am of the age where I know what I like and what I do not like what I like I enjoy enormously what I li- or what I dislike I cannot abide for instance the temporary pleasantries before what is determined to be a business discussion mm-hmm. and Ratchet just says you're fun yeah yeah and so or man so many of my notes are just quotes because this movie is same here full of too many amazing lines but um I love how like he could just be so dismissive of somebody and yet be so completely likable like whenever he he's talking with book and and book kind of describes why he loves trains like the best things on train are not or on the train are not food there's something about a tangle of strangers pressed together for days on end with nothing in common but the need to go from one place to another never or never to see each other again boredom plus anonymity plus a constant gentle rocking and uh, Hercule just kind of looks at her and says with your hobbies you will never amount to anything and it's just like <laughs> god I hope not exactly he's just he can be it's never coming across as rude though and even when he makes a clearly rude comment like whenever he just uh whenever uh ratchet says you know like you're saying uh, you're saying no to my dirty money he's like i'm saying no to you i do not like your face like it's just and, and, and there's that there's that same coldness behind it you know despite he, he's still being just as fun and quirky but there's you see that fire behind his eyes despite being very calm and polite. Yeah, like he clearly has these principles that he just defines his character by. Um, and when he comes across someone like Ratchet who just stands in like intentional opposition to what, you know, what he perceives the world as it should be, you can tell like he never drops this this polite attitude, but you can tell like when he comes across something that, as he puts it, cannot abide. And since we're there, might as well talk about Johnny Depp as Ratchet. And similarly to Brown, actually way far more so, it feels like every review I've read is like just people are just positively giddy about the opportunity to express their loathing for Johnny Depp. And here's people say, oh, he ruined the film. Oh, gosh, just just every review feels like they have to go out of the way just, just hate on Johnny Depp. But they never actually talk about his performance. And like... I had to make the same speech when we talked about Crimes of Grindelwald. Like, whatever his personal life is, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about the movie. And, and you know, he may indeed be a loathsome person. And if you feel the need to point that out in review, by all means, do so. But to just bang, to only speak about, you know, your hatred of him and then ignore the rest of the film, it just feels so pathetic and cowardly. Like, you, all you're doing is just performing for your readers. You're not actually... You know, doing the work of of examining the film, and it feels like just so many of the reviews just don't actually deal with the fact that he gave a very good performance. You know, again, I'm not even speaking to who he is as a person, but his performance in here is really good, and it is so frustrating to see that so many films feel like they have to just all just just bash him and move on without without recognizing the work he did here. So yeah, I, I, I mean, like he's not he's not giving like an amazing performance, but I, I think it's very solid, and especially this coming off you know that the whole string of you know Burton and Pirates of the Caribbean where he was really starting to to lose his uh lose his name as a serious actor and i thought like when he came here it's just a really solid character performance as this very slimy gangster and it's like he's like a very crude man who is kind of putting on a facade of dignity and pomp but it's only just barely there that that scene where he's like really rather boorishly uh flirting with mrs hubbard and it's just this like he's he's you know he's being all polite and proper but there's that that just like evil slimy side just barely under the surface and of course you know mrs hubbard sees through him right away um but yeah it's just he's 
he's giving like a really engaging performance and like his his chemistry with Kenneth Branagh is really sharp like just the way he delivers that line hey you're fun is just is great it's just yeah he gives a, like you know it's not the best performance in the movie but it's a really good performance and I feel like people should say that yeah I, I love it when we get characters who don't have a lot of screen time like this but who's when when we cast actors in that role who are able to to make them memorable despite their lack of screen time because he is a memorable character for me. There's so many little things he brings to the character that I, I really, really like. Um, just like the way he's trying to get um, Hercule's attention, you know, like, oh, he was, he was going to move. And he's just kind of, like his body language. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite lines is whenever he calls him Hercules and, and he corrects him. He's like, it's Hercule. And he's like, so it's just so rude and like and that you have those moments where he just completely drops this facade of like a a businessman he just reveals how how much of a slimy jerk he is and that you know that conversation he has with mrs hubbard and he's like i'll pay he's just everything about him is just so you can tell he's just just a truly awful person but he's playing it so well and you know, when he's, he's like trying to almost honorably uh, acknowledge his lack of honor. He's like, you know, if there's a life after this, I will. Like he's giving the speech as he raises the gun. It's just he's not here for a long time, but he's just so good when he is that I, I really, really enjoy the performance. Yeah. Another performance that I've already talked a bit about that I, I love is, uh, is Bateman as Book. Like yes. this guy is... From the first scene when he gives those lines that I love, like he just oozes charisma. Like he's so, like he grabs the camera's attention and he just doesn't let it go. But he's not like he's not just this one note character. We have all those funny lines and the, the lines where uh, we have Penelope Cruz's character saying like a uh, uh, vice is where the devil finds his darlings. It's like we should no longer speak. <laughs> he just gets up and moves. Like he's he's really he's. This, Sometimes he is just a comedic relief, but you when you get into the end and he's becoming desperate and he's needing him to solve this case and and as Hercule is offering the first option, he's like, no, no, it doesn't make sense. Like, there's a character there even behind all of his, you know, goofiness. Um, but whatever like the script is asking of him, he just like he completely sells it all. He's just so engaging to watch. Yeah, it's crazy. I never heard of this guy before, and I haven't seen him in anything since, but. He like he was he was you know in a cast that is this stacked he somehow managed to be one of the most engaging presences in the film full of you know amazing amazing actors and performances and I I think like he's so perfectly tuned into the tone Branagh is giving like he he really does feel like he, like he he knows exactly what the line of of uh you know comedy and melodrama and, and drama that this film has and he's able to walk it the entire way whether this with the scene is serious he's serious when it's you know it's tragic he he actually you know he bring he brings that as well like it's just a really good performance and i i, I want to see more of him yeah and like you said i mean this guy is in a movie with names that everybody is just like incredibly familiar with and and now i'm ready to see you know what he's doing next because he's just fantastic yeah and another guy that really surprised me was that josh gad as hector mcqueen um i never even really thought of him all that much before i mean i loathed olaf and i have and i don't really watch the type of comedies he's usually in so i just 
you know, really didn't know much about him. But coming to this, I was really impressed by, by his performance. And what's interesting is that this film is a very funny movie, but almost none of that's coming from him, despite you know him being probably the most recognizable comedic actor in the film. He's just here giving a really solid uh, dramatic performance. And I think he actually probably gets some, of, aside from like uh, maybe Pfeiffer and and uh, Poro himself, I think he's probably the one, one of the most emotional characters in the film. But, but before he gets into that, just the way he plays this kind of slovenly slouch of an American who's just kind of, he's here because Prohibition didn't agree with him. <laughs> and then, but then you just see that slowly wears away. And when he finally finds the, uh, when he finds that he was stealing and he's like breaking down, but also like fiercely defending, like, I didn't kill him. You know, I was stealing from him, but I didn't kill him. And then it, it, that crumbles away and reveals and reveal who he actually is. And he's talking about how his father was, you know, went after the wrong woman. Then he had his entire career destroyed. And I don't remember if he died or not, but like, he's just, it's a very emotional and painful scene. And, and despite the fact that even as he's revealing these various truths, that like, yes, he was stealing from his boss. Yes. He's Hector McQueen. And his father was this person. Even as he is, revealing all these deep painful truths he's still lying but it's all but all the emotion that he's bringing into this thing is is very real like all that emotion is part of his character even despite the fact that he's lying to try and get around the truth there it's this again you know in a movie full of standout performances i think he's one of the standouts yeah that scene where where is breaking down and that just everything about that that interrogation is is amazing <laughs> the, the, the line you know it is full of uh, what is the word of the uh, chocolate the fudge it is full of the fudge <laughs> <laughs> that, that line always got a huge laugh in the theater uh it got a laugh last night for when i was re-watching this um but yeah like as as you said like the stories he's telling is slowly crumbling apart and we the last thing he says, you know, it feels like the genuine truth. And, you know, the first time watching it, I thought, okay, he, he finally broke him. This is the truth. This is how he relates to the case. And, you know, he's pretty much you know, pleading with, like, or with these tears in his eyes as he's recounting the story. Like you said, the overall story he's telling, you know, there's there's truth in the story. But, like, whenever he's he's saying, you know, he didn't do it, that's that's the lie. But he's using all of the emotion in the truth of what he's telling to like kind of support this act, you know. He's he's just killed the man responsible for the fracture of all of these souls. He's recounted the story that, you know, his involvement pretty much with what happened with his father. And he's he's just he's screaming the lines that he knows he's supposed to say, and they sound so real because because of the truth. And it's it's just a, a really interesting scene where he he's able to give so believable of a performance like the character himself not the actor although the actor is giving an incredible performance but he's giving this performance because like i said there's there's truth to it and he's using his like the emotion that the truth brings to to support this lie it's just it's really cool and you know like like we said you know there's everybody's giving a good performance and there there are some that stand out one of the ones that i, I wouldn't say stand out but that i just I really enjoy because he's a favorite actor of mine. Uh, I always get excited whenever Willem Dafoe is in a movie. As you should. And and just like him playing this like just the first, the first part, this like racist German scientist is just this over the top kind of, you know, like trying to make it seem honorable. It's like to combine them would be a disservice to both races. Like it's just, it's like this classic old school kind of German villain. Um, and then when it like whenever he drops that, whenever um, Hercule calls him out on it, it just kind of becomes this like 
really likable kind of detective and yeah very rough salt of the earth kind of guy yeah i mean i would probably watch a movie about him um and then i do think he has this really sweet lot like this one moment where i'm like man this is this is part of the reason why i just love him as an actor whenever he's talking about the french maid who who took her own life and you know he's like i, I told her she could do better but she was there right on time for every day like he just he had very he was given that sad smile I, I, that smile almost breaks my heart every single time i watch the movie but you know, he's not given a whole lot of emotion up until that point but all of a sudden just in one sentence i completely buy his involvement in this you know just that he was robbed of this woman of his dreams who's you know like i told her she could do better it's just ah so sad and um, also a really cool touch that I noticed several times throughout the movie that his German accent was slipping a little bit. I just thought, oh, well, you know, the actor is having trouble with his accent. But then it's, then we have that reveal that it's actually a fake accent and it makes the whole thing all that much more clever. Turin. <laughs> just his kind of like the way he shrugs. is like, ah, I missed it. Yeah, so I, like I said, you have these central performances that are fantastic. But even these guys who are on the side just give great performances. And and most of them are at least given that one moment to to really uh, stand out. Yeah. Um, uh, then another, one, another one, like again, I said, we're going to be talking about for an hour about these actors. But another one is uh, Daisy Ridley as uh, Mary Debenham. Um, and what, what, what really stuck, to me, stuck out to me the first time viewing this film was that this character couldn't be more different uh, than Ray, which is um, which, which is one of my favorite performances in the last few years. And I was thrilled you know, to see, you know, being so blown away by her in Star Wars. You know, you kind of, you're always kind of worried that maybe they're just playing themselves and that they're, the actor might not have that much range when, when, you, when you see a new actor come on that really blows you away. And but you know, just seeing her in this role that is like, the polar opposite of who Ray is as a character was just really nice to know that she does indeed have range and that she'll probably be around for a while. Um, but beyond that, just the, I do like the performance. I love how as soon as uh, Perot starts questioning her, she immediately kind of just rises to the challenge and starts, you know, trying to match his wits and, you know, and she pretty much goes on the attack, you know, very sweetly and politely, but she's pretty much kind of going on the attack and every, Every time he tries to wheedle information out of her, she's already on top of it, kind of closing him down. And then finally, like at the end, even though both conversations kind of start with her on the offensive, Poirot being Poirot is able to back her into a corner each time, and yet she still maintains this you know very stiff sense and sense of you know dignity and self possession, where she just kind of goes really cold. You know, you know there is no law against my silence, and I I I just really like the fact that you know she's able to you know, play all those sides. And then even despite the fact that she loses both conversations, she's still able to maintain this really great sense of, you know, presence and, and dignity. Yeah. And I like that, like, it, it does feel like, you know, Perot is kind of trying to make it feel like there's, you know, a genuine relationship when he's, he calls her last up there. And he's like, he's like, you are clear of mind. And I thought you could provide insight. Like he's always trying to, to um, find ways to get her. And it's, it, you know, a lot of time she kind of, she sees what's going on and she's she's trying to play this game of of appearing helpful and appearing as if you know she she knows what he's after like whenever she's she reads off the list of questions and she's like you know perhaps there's just an 11th one that you you don't know like she's trying to play this part of of the helpful person who like you know don't ask me about myself but it's not me and you know if we agree there you know I can even help you with this it's just like you said it's a really it's a really good performance um 
and I think this is one of my favorite kind of performances where where someone's having to play a character who's having to play a character essentially and you know she is constantly trying to appear poised and dignified despite you know having just been a part of this murder um and she pulls it off oh and I just love the way she says the line you know, I like a good Roseanne it's like yeah you go Daisy <laughs> you tell that racist yeah that's a great moment so one of the people who absolutely is is one of the standouts which you alluded to earlier is michelle pfeiffer as mrs hubbard is pretty fantastic in this movie um and she is giving two different performances one she's you know one is the performance of you know like that that her character is putting on for the majority of the movie and then she she lastly has like almost just one scene to reveal her true self for the entire movie and all of a sudden, that's that's just a, a real character. Like, this is a real person. You know, it, it just takes one moment of her dropping her facade. I'm like, okay, yeah, that was just a character. And this is the real person. It's, it's an incredible moment. But to talk about, like, this character that she's putting on. Like I said, I love their first meeting where she's, you know, talking about all of her many ex-husbands and how she's kind of, you know, there might be truth in her husband hunting. And I love that turnip. <laughs> she seems, like, just super sweet and... Uh, like I love her line when she's talking. She's like, "I know you think that I'm a silly woman." It's funny. Like she, it's the character is like, oh, like she does play that kind of goofy, ditzy, just like, oh, she's just here to gossip and have fun and find a husband. But also underneath that, she's also playing this level of kind of insightfulness where she does understand people. Like when when Ratchet comes at her, you know, and yet the mouth opens. And like it, I love that she plays that line between like it's almost as if. She's a fairly clever person kind of putting on that silliness and vulnerability. But even that, even that's all part of a character that's still, you know, hiding, you know, the wrecked, the wrecked human soul that she actually is. And when she's revealed at the end to just be, it's kind of this empty person where everything she loves has been stolen and destroyed. That, that reveal, like whenever she takes the wig off. So I, I'm we're going to get into this when we talk about the the reveal and that the last moments of the movie, um, and about how it brings the tears every time. But the moment where where she grabs the gun and she turns it on herself and she tries killing herself to spare everyone else, and then she just starts she starts pleading for the sake of of everyone else. You know, just they now have a chance to live, and then she starts pleading for her only surviving daughter now. It's like, Helena has a chance to live. It's it's so just depressing. And like, and with the grayed hair that she, she just kind of pulls out, she just, she goes from someone who is, you know, I mean, she's catching the eye of Johnny. She's catching, like, you know, Book is trying to to maybe connect her with, uh, with uh, Hercule. And so just with that one reveal, she goes from this, like, you know, very put together lady to just an emotional wreck who's just who does feel like it's just a hollowed out soul at this mo- uh, point just cannot live anymore and in that moment because of how how much we've seen of this character she's put on to see who she really is just makes it that much more heartbreaking and it's just such a great moment of acting from her yeah and she can sing she's just perfect yeah and just going down the list uh 
Derek Jacoby as Masterman. Um, I love how he he speaks in this very dignified Queen's English when he's on duty. But after Rash is killed and when he's being questioned by Poirot, he slips into kind of this something a bit rougher. I, I don't know if it's quite uh, like a Cockney accent, but it's that a very salt of the earth kind of uh, uh, you know, kind of a countryman accent that, he, that you, you see that he was he was just kind of putting that on. And I just it's just it's just a great little character touch. You're know, telling you a lot about who he is. Uh, you know how he puts all these appearances at when he's the when he's um on duty, which is most of his life. But occasionally he'll he'll slip out into that actual person. And like the, the scene where he's revealing that he's dying, just that I don't know why but that seems like really affecting the line. You know, I'm sorry about the toothache. Just makes me want to cry. It's so it's like just the, that. There's just so much humanity that this guy's. This guy's just a great actor, and he's he's been in a lot of uh, uh Kenneth Branagh films and stage uh, productions before. But yeah, he's just. Like, this is why you hire, you know, Derek Jacoby and Judy Dench to have five-minute roles, because they can bring 50 years of incredible performances into their scenes and just blow you away with their limited screen time. Yeah, like, that that interview itself is, it finds a way of being so, you know, sweet and touching and sad. You know, when he, he talks about, like, months only, you know, I decided I would speak my mind. Like, he's just... He does feel like a real character. And then, you know, you mentioned Judy Dench. She's she's really, really, really good here. This is more this is more the role she's played in, you know, ninety percent of her movies, but she does it because she's really good at it. Well, but even so like it, it's so like a, a movie that has that's, you know, so predominantly British for her to to be Princess Dragomirov. Actually, you know, like to me she's she usually plays like this very kind of spunky British matriarch uh, who's very like quick-witted and, and likable. Here, I, I think she's she's just much more like off-putting and closed off. And there's these little moments of like emotional ferocity, like when he says Ratchet's name, she and just she's... spits. Or uh, the, the just the one shot where she goes in to stab him, like you see all that that venom and hatred. Uh, and that uh, of all the faces, like that scene is incredibly emotional. But her face is almost the one that just like breaks me the most. Where She's almost like can't. It seems like she can't even really believe what's going on. But but then you do see the fire in eyes, and she forces herself to just bring the knife down. And there's just other moments like whenever they're getting them all off the chain, and they're like they're taking the dogs, which like it's not right, not right. Like looking back at the you know the way they're walking their dogs off. It's just a again barely any screen time, but she finds a way of making herself really really memorable. And then you know with her is. Um, uh, Olivia Coleman as Hildegard Schmidt, and she's really good too. There are a couple actually that get kind of the loose end. I think her uh, Manuel Garcia Rulfo, uh, Sergei Polunin, Pol- uh, Penelope Cruz, and uh, Marwin Kanzari, who is actually uh, the, the Jafar. He's uh, he plays the uh, conductor, but uh, he's Jafar in Disney's New Aladdin, which I'm really interested to see him in. Like, there's so many great actors. Yeah, I, I do wish a lot. Like every one of them could have had more screen time, but I, I think. Again, the Man- Manuel Garcia Rufo. I think uh, he's really fun. The way he, I, I, be- I believe his character is Mexican, uh, but he, but he's an American now, and he wants. He's just like exuding that, you know, just that big broad, just, just kind of. He wants. He's, he's kind of. He, he's taken on. He's adopted this nation, and he wants the whole world to know that he's an American. And, Remember to say good things about us Americans. Yeah, it, it's just such a wonderful little touch that you know he only has a couple scenes as well, but yeah, good stuff. However, going back to two other actors that I do want to mention um, was uh, Leslie Odom Jr. as uh, Dr. Arbuthnot, which is just a great name. Um, you know, he, he, I love it. He's just so 
charismatic yet like calm and kind and dignified. Um, I, I really do want to see more from him in films. Yeah, I love Sanji. He, he had some Tom Fool opinions on Stalin that I had to set straight. But oh, like that, that, like that, that, talk about world building. Like I love that. Like that, it, one of them says at the beginning of the film, like uh, we were just talking about um, with Josh Gad. You know, he has some crazy opinions about Stalin, and then <laughs> later on that line comes back because it's slightly different. It's just like <laughs> such great world and character building. Yeah, he's he's really really good at it. And you said yeah too. I'm assuming the other was going to be Lucy Boynton as yeah. the as the Countess. Yeah. So I, I really liked her a lot in Sing Street. And so I was happy to see that she was in, like, you know, another bigger movie. Um, and she is really, really good. Like, this this person who just seems to be consistently out of it. Like, just so melancholy. Where, like, you know, she's, she's not dizzy. She's just very, very loose. She's and, super, super high. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. She just feels like she's constantly high. And kind of joking and laughing about little things. And I was like, I love talking to detectives. You never know what, what they're going to ask next. But there, beneath it all, there's just this level of like almost tangible sadness of just below everything she says. Mm-hmm. And fear. Like, the, 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 well, obviously, we learned later on it was the murder of her sister, but it's, it's driven her almost underground. I, I, she takes the barbital. I, I take it against my fears. And she's just like this. Again, you know, kind of like a hollow wreck of a person who is nothing but fear and just terror at the evil in the world that kind of exposed itself to her as a, as a. I don't know how. Do you know how long ago the murder was supposed to be? Um, I want to say it was. I think maybe a, a couple of years prior. Like whatever was the, that? Like this unspeakable evil kind of exposed itself to her, and now she is just this, this you know, heart terrified person, and, and she has this really tender relationship with uh with the count, um, the who's actually a dan- uh, an actual ballet dancer, Sergei uh, Polunin, um, and he doesn't get a lot to do, but I, I do, I do, I do buy the relationship. There's this very loving, tender thing they have together. Yeah, <laughs> I love, um, I love Lauren. He's like, you know, you're a dancer like your husband. He's like, no, not like my husband. He is touched by angels. I'm shoved by determination. Yeah, it's it's a like you said, it's a believable relationship for like the the two or three scenes they share together, and, and the scene you know after the revelation and and we're moving into the closing, just of her pouring out all of the barbital with like just tears streaming down her face is so moving to me. All right, before we get to the the, the big emotional climax, I want to uh, talk about something. I, I think there is a legitimate criticism to be made that, that is made in, by a lot of people that the mystery just isn't that great, I, and. I think that's partially true. I, I, I don't think Gre- Michael Green and Branagh did as well as they could have in making the mystery in uh, kind of like engaging, but also solvable. Like as the clues are coming out, it never quite feels like we are solving the case next to Branagh. It feels like we're kind of just watching a God waiting for him to tell us what the next revelation is. Um, Like the, the, the way he finds out things just they don't they don't feel they don't they feel more like a, just a series of lucky guesses rather than just the the only truly logical option and that happens a lot like the opening mystery that we have where he discovers that the captain stole the uh the artifact like he discovered all that because he saw a smudge in the wall and like the flashbacks the black and white flashbacks are they're, they're kind of flat and bland like i i don't think like there's the the way the mysteries are crafted they don't feel as engaging and, and like 
properly solvable as I think they could have been. And, and having sold itself as a mystery movie, I think there's a very legitimate complaint that people have brought to it. That it's, it's not a great mystery movie on that front. But as it's revealed, the, the film isn't actually trying to be a true mystery movie. You know, that comes out later. But, you know, having sold itself that way, I think it is a le- very legitimate complaint. Yeah. And, you know, not ha- I haven't actually read the novel myself. But from what I understand, Agatha Christie is actually very intentional about, like, uh, the group themselves, like, creating red herrings. Like, you know, in the movie, we see it's Mary who wore the red kimono. But I believe that's not even revealed in the book. And so there, there are things... That you're that you're not meant to guess, but I think the the problem with the film is that those red herrings are supposed to feel frustrating to us in the way that they'd be frustrating to uh, Perot, who, you know, who's like that. That only works if we're solving the stuff that is solvable with him. But like you said, every time he he finds something out, it doesn't always feel like you know it came organically and even you know in the the last scene where he's interrogating them on the table and he's like with the chef's eye the cook to the or like perhaps the cook to the i, I forget the the family's name is like i i guess like, yeah there was, was the armstrongs yeah to the armstrongs like it just it feels like he'll take a sliver of truth uh, about somebody and like create this entire idea of, of who they are and and of course that's always accurate but we're never like like you said we're waiting for him to tell us whoa what does that mean because we're it's just impossible for us to guess it because the only reason he does guess it is is because the script has him guess it yeah actually you mentioned the red herrings that's something that i i do like a lot about this movie is the way just the way they themselves orchestrated the murder it you know to and, and then you know, placed all these clues you know specifically to throw um poro off and it's like they they crafted all these personas for each of them, and then they set up like a red herring pointing to each of them, while also giving each one airtight uh, alibis. And you have like the red camino, the pipe cleaner, the conductor's button, McQueen stealing from Ratchet, the princess's handkerchief, uh, the man in Mrs. Hubbard's room, Mrs. Hubbard getting stabbed. Like every step of the way, they're just like throwing these red herrings that point to various people, but also giving those people airtight alibis, and also it, like there's like five or six of them. They present. They're given like two, three layers of or two layers of facades. Like there's the facade of who they're pretending to be, and then Aspero presses them. There's like a facade that they can afford to lose. Like oh, McQueen's a thief. Um, Mary Debenham actually does know Doctor Arbuthnot. Uh, you know, Masterman is actually dying, and he he he's not nearly as faithful as he thought. Like he thought he was. Like each actor. Each character is given like a facade they can afford to lose. Yet still, underneath that, they have the these air, another airtight alibi, and it's it's a, it's like this entire case was structured to drive Poro out of his mind and to break you know his you know, just to break his very logical mind where you have right and wrong and nothing else in between. And here you have an entire case that is you know nothing but in between because every time he 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 follows a thread it leads to a dead end and it leads to another thread it's just it's just a, a total maze that's like i think really well orchestrated i love how they kind of come together like all these clues are they're actually nothing but that the clues not actually meaning anything speak to the larger truth yeah and and that works for me a, like a lot better on rewatches you know like once once i am able to watch it knowing the truth i can appreciate all these touches they did i just think you know, for a lot of people, like both viewers and critics, a movie's only going to get the one watch before yeah. they're ready to, to write up their review. 
And so that's why I think we're the actual mystery. Like, were we feeling like we're making these guesses with him as opposed to just waiting for him to make the guesses for us? Were we doing that, then the red herrings would be more frustrating because we'd be experiencing it with him. But for us, all of it's frustrating. We're like, I don't know what any of this is. He's, he's just kind of making these leaps and, and I'm going with it because the movie says it's right. Um, but once you know things and you know what he's going to be saying, at that point, you know, being able to guess it becomes irrelevant and you are able to just enjoy this, this whole fabrication that they've created for him. There's one issue I had about, about the, about the uh, thing. It was like, it felt so unrealistic that they were all, they were able to, you know, all the entire car is only people from the murder, but actually reading the book, they had it where they had bought the entire car and, you know, in the beginning, where we have the guy who doesn't show up and Poirot takes his place. And when that happened, that was actually a car they had bought with a fake persona so that they would have the entire car to themselves. And so when like McQueen is, is you know, consternated at seeing, oh, he has a monkey when he shouldn't have, like that's real worry. Like, oh, the plan is, is falling apart. Oh, wow. And like that, that, and that, that should have been made clear in the film. And unfortunately it wasn't. And there's like little things like that where I, it feels like they, they kind of assume little bits of knowledge from the book that I think, would have made the whole film a lot tighter if they had made explicit. And I guess while we're on the, just the topic of things that might not work, really, I, I have, there's only one problem other than that, that I, I feel other than the mystery itself, not being as engaging of a mystery as it could be. Uh, I think the, the transition from, or between, you know, the, the gunshot and, and like pretty much the entire, um, admission of guilt from Dr. Arbuthnot into him coming to the table, that transition feels really weird. And it it works okay for me now, I guess, like on rewatches because I know why he's not satisfied because that just doesn't work out. But that moment was inc- incredibly confusing as a first-time viewer where we have a character show up like – for all intents and purposes, like you know, we see him shoot as at the the lead. They struggle, and he fully admits guilt completely. And yet, you have that that scene, and then it's a great shot of him, like under the like where we're seeing it from under the train, and he's holding the gun, and he's like, "Tell your oh, men to retire." I love like, that shot. It it looks incredible, but and then and then we have arguably the best line of the whole movie, where you know he talks about the two people that will know the truth. But on first viewing, I'm thinking like, wait, wait, what is he talking about? Like the the dude just admitted it. Like yeah. I was convinced, like that was the guy. And so we needed a moment where, like maybe you know they they cuff him and they take him away, and like everybody else seems satisfied. We need a moment of of Hercule seeing everyone else appear satisfied with the results, and him just in isolation, being like you know no something is wrong. Like this guy admitted it. I don't buy it, but we don't get that moment. So we just, we literally move from an admission of guilt that I, as an audience member, think like, okay, wow, he did it. Okay. Yeah. Like, I guess that's very plausible. Yeah. Into like, I will find the answer. Like, like, wait a second. It is time to solve this case. Like, wait, I thought thought we just did. Exactly. And so, but you know, like with, with the fact that, yeah, these critics are usually, you know, understandably so, you know, because they're having to see huge amounts of movies and write reviews about them, they're only going to watch it the once. And so if you have these really weird, confusing moments that kind of take a second watch to be like, oh, okay, that's going to affect their review. Um, and so 
for people who were kind of upset by the way this whole ending goes down, I kind of understand it because it is oddly laid out. Mm-hmm. And uh, since we're bagging on uh, Bradall, I think his direction of action scenes is is pretty bad in this movie. I like there's a we- really weird chase sequence where uh, uh, McQueen is trying to burn the books, and then they go on this this really elaborate uh, run through the scaffolding underneath the bridge, and it's it's really awkwardly shot, and and the editing is poor, and then it just ends really abruptly, and then we're back on the train. It's just the whole sequence felt so just weirdly superfluous and and it wasn't done all that well and same with the fit the fight between uh arbuthnot and uh Branagh. like it it's just kenneth Branagh. you know he's a brilliant director but action it really isn't his strong suit it, it, this sh- is very you know quick cut shaky cam and which is kind of disappointing for how glorious and and meth- methodical the rest of the movie is however you, you talked about that transition from uh the confession to uh, now I must solve this case being awkward. That said, I love the buildup. You know, as he's walking, you know, he's kind of staggering with, and he has the gun and he's like trying to put the coat over his shoulders. And he just, all you see is like the, his lower half of his body. And yes, you get all the frustration and anger he's feeling right now. And then when he's standing in front of the train, I love that, you know, th- throughout the entire film, he has always been perfect. You know, his hair is perfect. His mustache is perfect. His coat, every you know, piece of exquisitely tailored clothing is in the right, exactly the right place. And finally, and that slowly being beaten down, you know, the, the facade of perfection he has, he keeps around himself to, you know, to, to remain sane is just gone. And he's just revealed there, like, you know, his beautiful hair is all messed up. You know, he's bleeding. He's got the coat like haphazardly thrown across his shoulders and he's just done with the world right now. He is going to solve this case. So help him. Um, and it, it, it really pumps you up for that final scene. Yeah. And, and then just the final scene itself, uh, despite you know, like first viewing the, the frustration like, Oh, the, are you were the cook? You were this person. Like where like, like, Oh wow. I, you know, I couldn't have guessed any of that on rewatches. Golly. I just, I love everything about this where he's, he's laying out just almost a philosophy of the movie. Just, how one crime can fracture so many different people in so many different ways. And there's just this ripple effect. And like, how, how can you bring about true justice that balances out the, the wrongdoing that, and the acting in it where he's just, he's screaming. Like he's, you, we get the idea that he's just never found himself in this position yeah, it's and, and you know he he lays the gun down and is like, "Do it, one of you!" Like, it's so good. Yeah, it's like the, the, the problem. The, the reason I am so cool with the mystery not fully functioning as well as it should is because I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> because this movie isn't about the mystery. It never really was. The mystery is is just breaking down Hercule Poirot. You know, you know, just is just beating at his worldview to the point where he's just raw and fragile at the end, and faced with this cavalcade of human suffering that he has to reckon with. Like, you know, he opens the film with, you know, no matter what men may say, there is right and there is wrong, and there's nothing in between. And then the line before, right after he, the truth is revealed, he's like, there was right, there was wrong, and now there is you. And he just goes through this whole thing where we we see. That everyone here was in some way devastated and destroyed 
by this horrible, senseless murder of this little girl by Ratchet. And it's just like the, the ripple effect of, the, you know, he says a murder is supposed to have one victim. And yet here we have, you know, the grandmother, the cook, this person who was fired, you know, this person who, who's, who's a father, you know, was destroyed by the, the trial or whose uh, sister was falsely accusing, killed herself. All of this is this, this, this whole avalanche of just human brokenness that came about by this one act of senseless evil that now like, you know, Ratchet did this one evil thing to this one person and that caused in turn, you know, the, the, both the parents to die. And now that, uh, you know, that's a ripple effect, you know, then the trial and you have all these people who are, have been destroyed by this single act of evil and they, like none of them can actually live their lives anymore because of how, how devastated this action has made them. And so you know, they, they literally had to hunt down and you know bring justice to this murderer just, just, just so they can be able to live again. And I, I think one of, one of the, the great um, examples of that is a, is a, the, the countess character who, you know, she's, she's literally drugging herself because she's lives in terror. And I love that, you know, finally, a, after all of this, they, they finally found the man, they killed him. And I, after, at the end, when we're cutting between them, none, no one's happy. There's no relief. You know, it's not, oh, we did it. Now we can live again. It's, it's, we're still cutting between broken, sad, distraught people who are just like kind of in a daze. And it's not like, oh, they, you know, they've, they found vengeance and now they can live. It's maybe they can live. You know, they, 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 you know, they exercise their demon in this way. But they're still very broken people. It's all, it was just about, you know, finding the chance to live. And I love that the film, Poirot makes a very morally dubious choice. You know, these people, you know, they hunted down and murdered a guy. But then when Poirot is faced with this, you know, there's, there's no right wrong. You know, if he tells the, 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 the if he tells the uh, authorities, all these people will be hanged. And then, you know, that ripple effect of human suffering caused by that one senseless action by Ratchet is just going to continue to cause devastation to all their friends and relatives. So I, I think what he's doing in a way is trying to, you know, he's lying. He, he's, he's lying. He's breaking his, his you know, dearest of moral philosophies, but in a way tr trying to just stop that cycle of, of human brokenness right there. And, I don't think he's. I don't think he's entirely at peace with that. You know, he says he, it, there, that imbalance is still within him. He's just trying to essentially cause the least amount of human suffering as he possibly can, despite the fact that it it, it screams out against everything he supposedly believed in. And I love just at the end, you know, despite he he you know, he's returned to this very prim and proper his prim and proper self, but he's he feels so sad and deflated. And then, you know, as he goes on, you know, he kind of. As that, that beautiful long take, he kind of regains some of his composure, but you still have the sense that he's never going to be the same. You know, no one who was on this train will ever be the same again because just something so deeply horrible and human happened here. And we're just going to have to live with the imbalance of what we watched and just be thankful for the experience, I guess. One of the things that I love about the decision he made is – like you said, it's, it's it's this morally dubious decision where like, yeah, the, these people did do this. They they came, <laughs> this is very much, you know, planned, meditated murder. Uh, and so he doesn't say like, okay, you guys should be innocent. 
it, it's it's an incredible line. The continuation, like uh, there was right, there was wrong, and now there is you. And he he says, um, I cannot judge this. You must decide. Like he's he does not feel as if he is in a position where the actual answer is is attainable for us. You know, we he's he's almost recusing himself from the situation, saying, I'll. I'll say this. I'll say this is what I happened only because I don't know that we can find the right answer. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not it's not an entirely irresponsible decision because he does have that one final test where he gives them the empty gun to see if they are willing like to see what they are willing to to do. What was this, you know, a final act of human desperation to to stop pain or was this a kind of a selfish action where they continue this selfish trend by trying to kill me to save themselves. So like he he was actually you know, going to see if you know what they were made of as well like if releasing them back in society would actually be a danger to them and i love that whenever uh miss hubbard first grabs the gun and points it at him you have her daughter screaming no you know like not only is mrs hubbard not willing to point the gun at him because she later turns it at herself but even like the people around flinch and, and and you know scream no as as she tries like seemingly tries to do that and, you know, that that touch of, you know, none of these people would be willing, you know, the doctor missed on purpose, the daughter screaming not to do it, and the mother turns the gun on herself. Like these, you have that beautiful line, which is like, the, uh, there are no killers he- uh, here, just people who deserve a chance to heal. Um, and, and one of the, like, seeing that, that long take where he's walking through the train for the final time, that, first of all, it's it's being played... Patrick Doyle's music, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a little bit, but um, he's you that that monologue where he's he's addressing uh, Doctor Armstrong, you know, like I I can finally speak to your case and the truths of which are profoundly disturbing. Just this idea that it is possible to just break a human soul whose whose nature isn't like naturally inclined. He doesn't want to do this under any other circumstance. And it's, it's not like, you know, he has that line that just seems like a, a typical line of dialogue before. It's like a killer will never hesitate to kill again. Like that's his idea of a killer. Once you do like, this is a broken soul and it, that this, this, this person's going to keep doing this. Healing is not possible. Yeah. You hear that line where, you know, a, a murder requires a fracture of the human soul. Like he, he, like he literally views murderers like as different as, as like, they're like, they're like, they're not even human to him anymore. And he's, we must be better than the beasts. Yeah. And so for him, like for him to say like the truth of this is just profoundly disturbing that people can be pushed to this, but still just, you know, not be these evil beasts that I make them out to be. Some, some of these murders in the world may be committed by people out of desperation, just longing to live again. It's, it's an incredibly nuanced take at the end, and I don't know, I I love it, and I'm usually in tears during it. Yeah, and there's a scene we didn't mention, which is actually my favorite scene in the movie, is the, the actual scene of the murder. And what I, I mentioned before that I thought the flashbacks were pretty flat. This one is an exception to that. This is a brilliant piece of direction, where... You know, the entire film has been so very, you know, very sturdy. It's all these very, you know, wide, nice, deliberate shots, and here we have these like ten people on this tiny, you know, like 
you know, eight by six room and they're, they're cycling through each one going and stabbing. The camera is like, is like handheld and really shaky. And it's like, it's shaking around and like half the time it's out of focus. And we're like just getting glimpses of the, of the, the faces. Like each one comes in, they have, they, they, they stab and move off. And like, we're just catching just glimpses of rage and and hatred and sorrow and just despair as each character is like, is like finally trying to find some kind of, you know, you know, justice, vengeance, catharsis, healing as they're all coming around. And it's all, it's all laid over this, absolutely haunting track called justice from uh patrick doyle and it's just this really this like harrowing piano solo with this with uh strings underneath it and it, it's one of the saddest pieces of music i ever heard you know there, there's a handful of like uh you know tracks from scores that will affect me every time and this is definitely one of them like every time i hear it you know, you just brought back to like the lowest possible uh, human suffering and pain as we watch these characters just like clumsily trying to to live again through that act of murder. And it's it's just it's so powerful. Yeah, like like I said, so the first time I watched this, I wasn't able to fully appreciate that scene because of being kind of confused with the way everything went down, but. And, and that's why I was so taken aback when I was telling my friends, like, yeah, it's really good. We should go see it. And so I'm sitting watching it and we get to that part and I'm completely taken by surprise with now that I, I fully understand everything that's going on. I'm just like wiping tears from my eyes during this black and white sequence of, of them stabbing and like the horror in their eyes. Like even, you know, a lot of them, like some of them grab the knife and just go at it and some of them like there's that hesitation it's just it's so sad in the scene and and his final address to them where you know he says he tells them he he get he went with his first option that he, he gave the police and oh it's so powerful like you said it's it's incredible and then you know once the story's done and he's off the train you know he's exiting the train early we get that last take of the train going by and we see we get one last look at the face of everybody in the window as as they see him as it goes off and then we're informed on the death in the Nile and the 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 camera slowly pulls back in that shot that I referred to earlier. It's just it looks like a painting where you have the train in the distance with the smoke billowing in the air and and like almost these these purple hues across the snow and the and the lone train station it's it's just gorgeous and it's such a beautiful way to end the movie and i love that the film like it just breaks your soul but it also brings you to some kind of catharsis you know it doesn't give you all the answers but but like the characters like you feel that you can that you can also heal somehow you know despite you know the brokenness you've experienced in that in that climax um yeah, like the the ending of this film is is so pitch perfect. Yeah, so let's uh, move on to the uh, soundtrack. Uh, please tell me you listened to the soundtrack this week. <laughs> I did not have to be told to listen to the soundtrack. I already ha- I already listened to the soundtrack pretty regularly. This, I mean, I'm I'm a big fan of Patrick Doyle, who I was introduced to because of Branna, uh, and this is my favorite from him. There are a lot of uh, right answers to this question, but what were some of your uh, standout tracks from this score? It's trying. I think one of the reasons I was sad that I had to do this is like, man, I hope people don't take this as kind of license to only listen to these recommendations because 
my true recommendation is listen to the score from start to finish because yes. it's incredible. But um, I I limit it mainly to when we first get introduced to a lot of the themes that I love. Uh, I I included the Wailing Wall. That theme never really comes back, but it's almost completely specific to this very short crime. But it's so like fun, and and the the music and the instruments match the location, and it and it does a good job of like giving an idea of what to ex- me, giving an idea of what to expect from the score. Uh, and then I chose uh, Hafa or Jeffa, however to pronounce that, to Stanbul, um, which is. Uh, kind of a slow version um, to uh, of like the, the I guess the main travel theme uh, it's very very adventurous and fun and, and and memorable to me I remember you know like hearing it the first time watching me like okay I'm definitely gonna have to revisit the score and then arrival which which is uh, uses a lot of the same themes to the previous track but makes it even more like it's the same theme, but kind of faster and more adventurous. But it, it, it also, Arrival opens with this really, like, a very mysterious kind of foreboding yeah. you know, before it moves into the kind of the twinkly optimism. Uh, and then the Orient, uh, the Orient Express, which, so that that plays as, as we're moving in, like, as we're in the station, we get that great boarding scene of, and the long take of him coming on. There's this weird sense of like a beautiful whimsy in that that kind of has a hint of foreboding, like something's about to happen. There's a sense of mystery, but it's not like this kind of like shocking or in your face. Right? It's just kind of hanging out in the background of this theme. It's it's really really cool where it matches like the fun vibrant colors of the scene while kind of hinting at at what's going to come. It's like the, just the, the romance and uh, adventure of everything that the the name Orient Express should kind of uh create with the gentle you. rocking. Um and then of course lastly Justice which is honestly not like it, arguably my favorite it's it's arguably my favorite piece of music from that year and it's probably one of my new favorite tracks of, of any film ever like you said there's i can list a handful of tracks that are going to just elicit an instant emotional reaction from me with only like the first notes and this is one of them and it, it's weird because it conveys just sorrow and loss so well but in a beautiful and almost dignified way like it's just it, beautiful piano with this this gorgeous strings kind of underlining everything in it and it's it's nine minutes it's just like i put this on and i just lie down and want to cry it's it's absolutely beautiful and it this track is my favorite track that uh doyle has ever composed yeah it's the it was actually patrick doyle himself on the piano and that just that piano man uh, just as you said, every time I hear it, I am I am there and I am ready to weep. But also, I love that you know it starts off like as sad as possible, and then you instruments are brought in and then are moved. It goes like there's this whole journey of emotion. It almost feels like a musical, like stages of grief kind of thing. I- yeah, yeah, yeah. You go through this entire journey of emotion from the darkest to at the end. You know, at the end, it's still very somber and sad. But you feel like you've come to a good place. This is like a, the, 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 this nine-minute track brings you through the darkest of places, but also gives you a little bit of catharsis at the end, like like the film. Arrival and Orient Express were also on my list, but also uh, there's a track, Judgment, which is like this 
tolling bell counting down uh it's also like very ominous and sorrowful there's some like really beautiful uh, piano work um the armstrong case which is the uh the the same it's a theme that shows up throughout the film and and uh obviously uh is the main theme in the in the track justice then uh, there's another three tracks that all contain variations that you have uh, mrs hubbard which has like a like a faster version of the Armstrong case playing through it, but with also kind of something, a bit of ominous uh, tone to it. Then you have geography, which is yet another tease to the Armstrong case, which is that it has the, it played like even faster underneath. Then you have uh, Ma Catherine, which is a, of an even like a really slow, older, more composed version of the same theme. Like it, it, like it's the same sadness that you get from the actual version in justice, so you you have the tragedy, but there's it feels more composed. It feels more like elegant. There's some really beautiful vocals in there, and also I do, again do want to mention uh, "Never Forget," which is a song by Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, it feels like it's like it's like a tribute to Daisy Armstrong, set to the Armstrong case theme. Um, it's a bit too modern for me. I, I wish they went with, with the sound was a bit more classical. However. It it is like the perfect capper for the kind of emotional journey you've been on the film. It's kind of like this this goodbye to this little girl that you know who's lost, devastated all these lives. Yeah, and I mean, listening to the like, if you allow yourself to just be emotionally affected by the movie, and and you are, and like like myself, whenever I watch it, and I'm you know I've got the tears in the eyes by the end of it, and you're listening to the lyrics, it's just such a such a solid way to end the story and it, and it, it tells you what this movie was really about all along you know, like you can criticize the mystery but at its heart this movie was never about the mystery it was about these people it was about this this horrible thing that happened to these humans and how they were broken by it and how they tried to heal from it and i love that underneath it like this movie was telling us the, the the music was telling us the truth all along. Like there's like four or five places throughout the film where we have that the Armstrong case thing coming back again. It's it's telling us you know what this was all about all throughout the film, which you don't notice because you're kind of caught up in the mystery of it all. And uh, there's a quote from Patrick Doyle where he says, you know, they thought they were coming to a murder mystery. They didn't know that they were coming to it to see an emotional roller coaster. Like he, like they were very well aware of what they were trying to give the audience. Yeah, there's a quote that I should have. Uh... I should have saved from Brana where it was after the movie had been released for a while and he almost like explicitly says like yeah it's not about the mystery you know this is never really truly a mystery movie this was more of a just a study on morality and justice and and what can be achieved by humans like whether justice can be found things like that like and it's just frustrating that that didn't get across to so many people who just like wow that was like I didn't care about that mystery at all. I was like, well, that's not the point. Right, so before we close out, uh, James, what is your star rating for this film out of five stars? Uh, I go a, a very, very sturdy, very solid four out of five stars. Um, I think that one, the lack of like going into the final reveal, I do think that is, you know, that's a pretty major misstep, you know, for a movie that is going to kind of win or lose people on a first viewing. Um, like you said, the the mystery itself, despite the fact that yes, they admit like it, it's not really about the mystery, we're still experiencing and solving the mystery for huge portions of the film. So the fact that it's not like it's super super engaging, I think, is also um, you know a knock against it. And then like you like you pointed out earlier, just he's not 
always an engaging action director and sometimes it just it feels off i think it keeps it away from from like four and a half or five but i i would never forgive myself for going lower than a four so this is very very solid one of one of my favorite movies of the year yeah that's exactly where i am the exact same logic like i my my emotions kind of wanted to tell me to give it a like a 4.5 after viewing but you know as you said there, there are a lot of flaws so like I think it's going to stay at four forever. Like, I don't think it's ever going to go up, but it's definitely never going to go down. Yeah. I mean, the ceiling is, is likely to stay there, but the floor is never moving. <laughs> like, I just, I love this movie too much. Yeah. All right. So um, upon its initial release, it grossed $102 million uh, domestically and $249 million uh, in the foreign markets for a worldwide total of $352 million on its $55 million budget, which how on earth did they make this movie on $55 million? I have no it's so freaking gorgeous. Now now to be sad again. Uh it received a fairly lukewarm response from the audience and critics. Uh it holds a, a 52 52 on Metacritic, a 57 on Rotten Tomatoes and the audience meters uh the audience meter is only at 54% and a uh, 6.5 on IMDb. So the audience as well was a uh, wasn't too keen on this movie. Um the cast and cinematography were praised uh, but the mystery and characters were often criticized uh a lot of people weren't happy with you know with where how a lot of the char- a lot of the actors only got very small roles um <clears throat> the mystery as we said wasn't as engaging as it probably could have been also a very common refrain i hear in a lot of reviews was oh it didn't need to exist you know we've had previous adaptations which Ugh. shut up but i i I, heard, I do know uh several people that have similar to us kind of fall madly in love with this movie but um sadly i think we are definitely in the minority and I, i'm just hoping you know, over the years people will come back and rediscover this maybe uh, with the sequel Death on the Nile being made, people will kind of come back for what could be a second viewing after the first one that didn't work, and then and then enjoy it a lot more. Because it did make that's a pretty decent profit, like at least two hundred million in profit. So the, a sequel was announced, uh, Death on the Nile, and it's currently bit being written by Michael Green and uh, Kenneth Branagh is uh, set to direct and star again after he finishes with uh, Artemis Fowl. Um, also, Gal Gadot and Army Hammer have joined the cast, so that's exciting. Yeah, this is already looking like if that sets the tone for the rest of the casting decisions that are going to be made, then I'm going to be a okay with this. And I hear uh, Tom Bateman is coming back as well. I don't know how he's going to fit in, but I just want more of him. <laughs> yeah, I don't care if he has to be airdropped onto the Nile itself. Just, just make it happen. It, it's currently set for a 2020 release. Um, I'm really curious to see how they. Like since there was so much criticism for the film, like I don't, I don't know if it's even like humanly possible to rec- recreate the same emotion. So I wonder if this one's going to be more of a straight mystery film, which is what people seem to want be wanting from it in the first place. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to be probably okay with that if they, you know, they don't completely lose with the character, like lose touch with the emotion of the character. However, because he's directing in it, because he's starring in it, and because despite Michael Green writing it, uh, Branagh was involved in the writing process of the first, and so I I I can't imagine that he he not maintain a lot of the emotion that made me love it. it he he feels just judging by what I've read about the movie and and how how much he was involved in it, he's probably pretty passionate about about this character in particular. And, you know, if we if we still get glimpses of this character amidst just a more, you know, standard kind of mystery, then I'll still be happy. I just want to spend more time in this in this world, like seen through the eyes of Kenneth Branagh, because as we, as we said, this movie is so full of joy and life that 
we just you don't see all that often in film with this level of craftsmanship and and you know bombast or pomp you know pomp and circumstance it's it's such a just a big joyous experience like every second of screen time every line is as good as it could be for, for the most part yeah it's just a it's a place i love to be i just i love being with him in this world so even if it doesn't have the same emotional punch it's going to be like a really joyous ride so that was uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Again, I'd like to ask you guys to please go and give us a rating and review on iTunes. If you want to like us on Facebook, we're there as Franchise Fatigue Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Franchised Pod and also on Instagram as, at Franchise Pod as well. And if you want to find our other episodes, you can go to FranchiseFatiguePodcast.com. And where can people follow you, James? Uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd. I'm there as JL Hamry. It's J-L-H-A-M-R-I. Um, and you can also find me over on Facebook. I am, or we are, some of the admins over at Star Wars who are Star Wars fans who actually like Star Wars. Um, definitely come over there if you're if you still feel a passion for the universe and like talking about it. Uh, we would gladly uh, let you join. And I'm also on Letterbox, and there's Gabriel Green, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Gabe A Green, and I'm on Instagram as Gabe the Great Green. Um, so next week we are going to be, actually not next week, uh, two weeks from now, we'll be starting a new series and it's going to be Mission Impossible. Yay. Yeah. This is one of my favorite, uh, series of all time and it just gets better with every installment. Yeah. I'm really, really excited to go. I've, I've only seen like one and one, two and Ghost Protocol more than once. All the others I've only seen once. Um, Oh, wow. So I'm really, really excited to just go and consistently go through them like week by week uh, because I, apart from from one particular uh, installment, I, I love all of them. So until the next episode, we will see you in the new franchise. I must learn for once to live with the imbalance.